Good morning, church. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 15. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. We have, for several weeks now, we have been studying what it means when we say that Christ is in you, Christ in you on Sunday mornings. And we're going to be continuing the study indefinitely, probably right up to Thanksgiving. And, um, and we are focusing on this particular chapter of Scripture, John 15, as really the core teaching that I believe the Lord Jesus wants you and I to have. On Sunday nights, we've been talking about Christ through us and how this truth in our life as an individual applies to us as a church. And so I encourage you to come back and and explore that with us this evening. The title of this morning's message is really taken from verse 5. It is, Without me, you can do nothing. Let's begin reading in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. The first message in the series, we we raised the question, if Jesus drew a picture of a disciple, what would it look like? And we pointed out that chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 are the core teachings that Jesus spoke on the night before he died and before he left this earth with his life that they had begun to be so familiar with as his disciples. But in chapter 14, he said all that is going to change. They anticipated that that moment that what Jesus was going to do, that this was the night where he was going to manifest himself as the returning king, as the Messiah, who was going to rule the earth with a rod of iron and to feed all the enemies of Israel. But as you go through chapter 14, it's pretty clear that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that he's leaving, he's going to a place or they can't come, where just anybody can, can't come, but, but they, they can know the way because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to send someone in my place. The Holy Spirit, he has been with you, he says in John 14, now he's going to be in you. So as Jesus is preparing to go, he wants them to understand that their life is about to change forever, that this relationship they've had with him is going to continue. He said, I'll not leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. But this relationship that we've had is going to be fundamentally different from now on. And how will it be different? Well, that's what John 15 is addressing. And so if Jesus drew a picture of a disciple after his death and resurrection, what does discipleship look like? Well, he said that a disciple is like a branch who's united with a vine. And he's using the imagery from the vineyards that they all would have been familiar with. He said a branch draws its life from the vine, and if a branch is ever going to bear fruit, it does so only if it abides in the vine and remains connected to the vine. 
And so the life of a disciple is very different from the life of any other creature on the planet. And it bears this tremendous similarity to a branch in a grapevine. And then the following week, we talked about the inner life of a disciple. And those of you who were here, you'll remember we, we tried to illustrate with a door the difference between our outer man and our inner man. That all of us have an inner life and an outer life. Many of us don't spend a lot of time with our inner life. We don't give much thought to it. And as a consequence of that, we are influenced by all the material and media messages and stories that we watch and all of the information that we are flooded with through our smartphones and our televisions and through our, the internet access, through all of that, we just put, pour all of that into ourselves. And as a consequence of that, for the average person, their inner man is filled with a worldly perspective of life. And so when they encounter a problem, when they encounter difficulty or as they make decisions in life, they are tremendously influenced in their outer man by all this information that's come from the outside into their inner man. And the challenge for us as Christians is to awaken to the fact that we have an inner relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the vine and we are the branch. And he has said, I want you to abide in me. We're going to study abiding in more depth in coming weeks. But in that, that picture... We understand immediately that you have an inner life and an outer life, an inner man and an outer man, and we are called as Christians to live in both arenas at the same time and not simply ignore our inner life where we meet with Jesus. Today, I really want to take up this question, what does Jesus mean when he says, without me you can do nothing? Because I believe that's the first step to understanding what it means when he says to abide in me. One of the great questions that we should have as a new Christian or as a long-time Christian is how do I live this Christian life? How do I do it? What is it? Is it just simply trying to do my best to be a good Christian person? Or is there something more to it? Well, when Jesus adds that phrase, without me you can do nothing, he turns probably most of our philosophy, our thinking about life, he turns it upside down. So what does Jesus mean when he says, without me you can do nothing? He means several things. Number one, first he means that your new life depends on maintaining a close connection to Jesus. Without me you can do nothing. In verse 5 he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me you can do nothing. That word without... And it may be uh, the word apart in your translation of the Bible, if you're following along. The basic understanding of that word, the, the core meaning of that word, means separation or separate or separated. And it's the concept of something being distant from something else, separated. And he's saying, separated from me, you can do nothing. One of the best ways to study a word in the Bible is to see how that very same word is used by the same author in other parts of their writing. And so if we take, take John, who wrote John 15, if we take that, we see that he uses this word without in two other places in the God. You may want to jot it down. It's not on the screen. But it's describing the scene of the empty tomb. And it says in John 20, verse 7, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by it 
itself. That's our word. By itself. It was separated. The handkerchief that was wrapped around his head, these linen cloths, were folded neatly, separated from the rest of the material. It was folded and it was off by itself. That's a spatial separation between two things. And then he uses this word again in John chapter 1 verse 3. And it's a relational separation. In John 1 verse 3 it says, All things were made through him, and without him, or separate from him, or apart from him, nothing was made that was made. You can't be separated from Jesus and have been created. Only by being connected to him was something created. So all creation was connected to him from the very beginning. And so this concept of, for without me you can do nothing, is talking about separation from Christ. Now, in saying that, he's saying some very important things. We're going to look at a couple of these things in more depth later, but he's, he's saying something, for example, very important about fruit. You don't have to read this passage very far. In fact, you just get to verse 1 and 2 and see that fruit is very important to the Father. Now, we haven't talked about what fruit is. We haven't defined fruit yet. We're going to look at that later. But, but what he is saying is that you can do a whole lot in your life. You can write books. You can be famous. You can study. You can get degrees. You can run for public office. You can win public office. You can do a lot of things. But you can do nothing that looks like fruit without him. And so whatever fruit is, it's something very different than what we think of when we think of accomplishments or mere talents. He's saying something very important about fruit. He's also saying something very important about himself. I think this is probably one of the great verses that you and I can go to when we want to show someone that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is deity, that He is God. And He's saying this very important truth about Himself. If you don't believe that, this afternoon I want you to go next door to your neighbor and knock on the door. When they open the door in your best solemn King James voice, I want you to look at them in the eye and say, without me, you can do nothing. Now, they're either going to laugh at you or they're going to think you're crazy. And, you know, that's what, that's what Jesus was saying. Without me, you can do nothing. And so he's telling us something very important about who he is, his identity. But the main thing I want you to see this morning is that he's saying something about your new life when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. When you were saved... When you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and he came to live inside of you, he gave you a new life. But when you receive that new life, one of the things that you should have been taught, one of the things that you and I should have understood is that that life is lived entirely differently from the life that I had before. It's an entirely different approach to life than the one that I had before. I think to understand this, you and I have to go back to the very beginning and understand how God intended life to be lived in the first place. And there's nothing like going back to the very beginning. You know, there are only two perfect men that ever lived who did exactly what God wanted them to do. And one of them was named Jesus. We know that. But do you realize who the other one was? Adam. Before he sinned, before the fall, he was living exactly the way God wanted him to live. And so he is representative of the life that God intended for you and for me. The Bible tells us that he was made 
and that all of us have been made in the image of God. We talked about this before, but I want to underscore it again that 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 right away shows you and I that God has a purpose for you and me in our creation. That by making us in his image, it was the plan of an invisible God to make himself visible through you and through me. That people could look at us and by listening to what we say and watching what we do, they could apprehend or understand something of who the invisible God is. And so God, we were made in his image. And so that original plan was not that you and I would live apart from him, not that you and I would live independently of him, but that in this relationship with him, in close contact with him, constant communion with him in the garden, we would make him known to all creation, depending on him every moment for everything that we needed. And so God created man and placed him in the garden. You'll remember there were two trees in that garden. There was a tree of life. That was the first one. And there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not just the knowledge of evil, was it? It was a knowledge of good and evil. And so you had the tree of life. God put no prohibition on that tree, did he? He didn't say you could not eat of the tree of life. He only put that restriction on one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It represented a life that was lived without God, independent, deciding for myself what is right and what is wrong, and then using all of my energy, all of my strength, all of my determination, and all of my humanity to make the right choice and do the right thing. And God said, don't go there. I don't want you to live like that. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Meanwhile, you have the tree of life. It wasn't a tree of the knowledge of life. It was a tree of life. And in this relationship that God had with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were free to eat of the tree of life, and receiving life from him was very simple. All they had to do was depend on him for everything, every moment to supply everything that they needed for life. Well, the essence of sin was man rejecting God's way to live. When they disobeyed him and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they suddenly were placed in a position of making their own decisions. God never intended that they be in that position. That was not the life as he intended. He wanted them to simply follow his lead, receive direction, receive everything they needed from him. But now they were in this position of deciding for themselves what is good, what is bad, and then with all of my effort and strength, trying to live this new life independent of God. They lost their connection to God, though. The Bible says at the moment that they ate, they had this incredible sense that suddenly they became aware of the fact that they were naked and they had no clothes. And they didn't like that. And God made everything, said it was good, but they took one look at each other and said, this is made, and they, using their best ingenuity, best effort, took some leaves, sewed them together, and tried to cover up. Inadequate solution. And then God comes walking through the garden, and what did they do? They, they hide themselves from God. They are feeling no more connection to him. Now they're afraid of him, and they're wanting to hide from him. This is not the way God intended life to be lived, to be lived independently of him. It was not the knowledge of good and evil that they needed. It was not the knowledge of good that they needed. God is 
God is the one who is good. They didn't need a philosophy. They didn't need religious principles. They didn't need a written list. They didn't need the law. They didn't need the rules. They didn't need any of those things. They didn't need to know what is good. They just needed the God who is good. And out of that relationship, they would live the life that God had intended for them to live, a life dependent on him. Goodness is not an idea. It's a person. So what does Jesus mean when he says, without me, you can do nothing? He means, first of all, that your, your new life depends on a close connection to Jesus. Secondly, your new life is not an improvement on your old life. It's not just an improvement of your old life. Without me, you can do nothing. Many believe this. Many people believe that they get to a certain age in life. Maybe they went out of high school. They went to college. They quit going to church. Uh, they got, made all their major decisions in life without reference to God. They decided what they were going to do with their life. They decided who they were going to marry. They began a family. And somewhere along the way, they said, you know, we're starting to make some real important decisions here, some serious decisions. I am responsible for deciding what is good and bad in my life. And I think I need better information than what I've been getting. And so what I'm going to do is go to church. And what they're going to do at church is give me better information for how to be the person that I want to be. And so they begin to see Christianity as a self-improvement program. And if that's the way you see it, you do not yet understand the Christian faith. You don't understand the life that God has for you when you trusted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Let me illustrate it this way. Tomorrow marks 16 years since the events of 9-11. And all of you that were old enough to remember can probably tell me where you were when those first images of the planes hitting the Twin Towers came across your TV screen. And when you got the news of, of what was taking place. I want you to imagine 16 years ago if you took a friend who had never lived in a city. They were perhaps from a third world country. Maybe they lived in a jungle. They never had seen a city at all. And you took that person and, and you took them to New York City. And in taking them to New York City, you, you described to them how different the city was from the jungle. And how New York City had these incredible, the Sears Tower was finished, your stories tall. Housing 50,000 workers every day. 200,000 visitors coming in and out of these twin towers every single day. 10 million square feet of office space. They had 430 companies that were housed in those twin towers from 28 different countries. Now if you took your friend there 16 years ago today, September 10th, he would see what you were talking about. He would have seen those towers. They were pristine. They were, they were in good shape. They were in good condition. They were, they were not in any danger whatsoever. But if you took them there 16 years ago tomorrow, on 9-11, all they would see is the damage done by an enemy. 300,000 tons of steel girders. 700,000 tons of rubble, over a million tons, just piled up in a big heap. That's what they would have seen. Now, what if you said at that moment to your friend from the jungle, I'm sorry, 
that it's like this. It was a wonderful place. Tell you what we'll do. Let's go in and improve it. What we'll do is we'll go and we'll push some of the rubble over here. And we'll, we'll get some of the girders moved over here. And, and, and it'll be something like what it was. And, and we can visit it then. I don't think your friend would be interested. He'd say you're wasting your time. Dear one, your old life without Jesus and my old life without Jesus is just a heap of rubble. It is the life of man after the fall of man. It is damaged beyond repair. If you read your Bible carefully, it becomes part of everything that is going to be destroyed at the end of time. Our physical bodies and everything associated with our old life are, are going to burn up. There'll be nothing left. And if you take someone who on the inside looks like that to a counselor because they have a problem, and that counselor looks at that man or that woman and says, what is your problem? You think they have a clue what their life is really like on the inside? You think if that counselor, if they don't understand what's going on inside a person from a spiritual perspective, you think they have a clue how to help someone? At best, all I can do is maybe improve one little place, push a little rubble aside, move a little girder here or there. But what's needed is not the improvement of the old life, is it? There is a new life. A brand new life that Jesus has created for you. And he's called you to enter into that life. To put on the new man. To discard the old man. Like putting on a garment. We need a new life altogether. And the life of Jesus is what we need. For generations people have been coming to church and receiving a new life. And then asking the question, how do I live this new life? My fear is that for generations we've been giving out the wrong answer to that question. And those generations of Christians have led lives of disappointment and failure and hurt. And I am one of them. I could tell you stories of how I have wrestled with different aspects of my life, growing in Christ, not understanding some of the things we've been talking about in recent weeks. Without him, I can do nothing. If I don't abide in the life of Christ, drawing my life from him, drawing my direction from him, if I don't abide in him, where do I abide? In the trash heap. Without me, you can do nothing. You're separated from me. There is no life. Abide in me, he says. So what does Jesus mean if he says, without me, you can do nothing? He says, first of all, your new life depends on a close connection to Jesus. Secondly, he's saying your new life is not an improvement program. It's not a campaign to improve your old life. But the third thing he means by this is that your new life is not lived through the imitation of Jesus, but through submission to him. In 1897, there was a book published that sold 30 million copies after its publication. 
written by a man named Charles Sheldon, a congregational minister. The book was called In His Steps, and it was the latest evolution of, the, of centuries of an understanding of the Christian life that was just false, the imitation of Christ. The subtitle of the book, In His Steps, was this, What Would Jesus Do? Does that sound familiar? In the 1980s, they started selling these bracelets with WWJD on them. What would Jesus do? And the whole premise of the book is this. You try and figure out what is right and what is wrong by looking at Jesus Christ and then trying to be like him. Study your Bible, find out what's good and bad, right and wrong, and then try to do that. Imitate that. Be like that. And that's where the whole concept of of the imitation of Christ comes from. And then you can pull off the new life. As your pastor, I believe that's an error, that that is not what Jesus has called us to. I brought a friend with me this morning to help illustrate that. The mouse. Now, let's say this mouse had a deep admiration of bald eagles. (laughs) Now, most most mice do not admire bald eagles. They hide from them. Um, But this guy is different. He's a different kind of mouse. And so he admires these birds. And so he gets a bracelet. He ties it to his foot and it says WWBD what would the bird do he takes advanced courses in flight he keeps the books close at hand so he can look these things up when he thinks he needs them the most to be the most bird like that he possibly can be but he's never going to soar is he You're never going to fly. Imitation's not enough. Think of the Lord Jesus. He was a carpenter. Did Jesus approach this this way? Did he wear a bracelet that said WWFD? What would the Father do? Every time he made got ready to make a decision every time he had a, a major issue in his life or he was tempted what he did is he went and he grabbed his parchments and listen the books were a lot thicker back then and he grabbed his parchment he says I know it's in here somewhere and he looks it up and he reads it I mean do you think he lived his life that way do you think that is the life of Jesus Christ listen to what he said the son can do nothing of himself does that sound familiar the son thank you The son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father doing is literally what it says. He can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father doing presently, right now, at this moment, John 5, 19. John 5, 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing of myself. This is the son of God. 
He is God. He never stopped being God. The Bible tells us he is Emmanuel, God with us. But when he became a human being, he elected, he chose to live life as an ordinary human being. And he became our representative, just like Adam was our representative. And he showed us what this life looked like. He says in John 8, 28, I can do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I am speaking, I speak these things. The Father tells him something, he speaks it. The Father shows him what to do, he does it. And then he turns to you and me, and he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Not with Jesus being out here, and he, and he comes along beside you, and he just sort of out there. When Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing, he's saying that there's only one way to live this new life, and that is to live it the way he did, by staying in constant contact, in close communion, maintaining a strong connection with your Father. It's the only way. He's not there to help you. And, and all of us do this. I do this. I've told you before, my favorite prayer for years has been, Jesus, help me. But he's not out here somewhere. We talked about this two weeks ago. He's not out here somewhere just waiting for you to, to call on him and then come and help you. Where is he? Where is he? He's here. He's inside you. He truly does live in your heart by faith, it says in Ephesians 3. He lives there. And, and so when I am in a, a difficult situation, I don't know what to do, don't know what to say, don't have the strength to deal with a given situation, I don't need to say, Jesus, help me. I need to turn to him and I say, Jesus, I trust you to provide me in this moment with all the resources I need, everything I, I need in this moment, I trust you to supply me with. I am trusting you to live your life through me. This is what Paul meant when he wrote Galatians 2.20. It's one of the verses we've been studying on Thursday morning in our men's group. Paul says, I am crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live now, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know that about Jesus? He loves you, gave himself for you. Do you understand that? Do you know, Christian, that because he loved you and gave himself for you, that when you trusted him, he came to live inside you? And you trusted him by faith to save you? Guess how you're supposed to live? You trust him by faith for life. Not just when you die, eternal life. But two chapters later in John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God and his son whom he has sent. It's a relationship. It's not just getting a ticket, and so when I die, I have my ticket, and I can present it to St. Peter, and I can get into the pearly gates, and I can go to heaven. No. Eternal life is right now. I trust Jesus to save me. I trust Jesus to live in me. He is my life. Is he your life? In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and I'm going to be down front with the other pastors that are here. And our great joy would be to share with you how to take those first steps of trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Without him, we can do nothing. As a, as a man or woman without Christ, the Bible says I am lost and I am cut off from the life of God. 
Salvation begins when a person realizes that they're lost, that they have sinned, that they are separated from, from, from the life of God and they want to come back to Him. They seek His forgiveness. Because Jesus died on the cross, He is able to pay the price of punishment, the penalty that our sins deserve so that a righteous God could have fellowship with you and me. And so Jesus carries away our sin. I don't care what you've done, how bad you think you are, He carries away all sin at the cross. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Every sin you have committed can be forgiven this morning. And it's received by faith. It's a gift that we don't deserve. We call that grace. It's received by faith when I put my trust in Jesus. And the way that I begin that new life of salvation by being forgiven having my sins forgiven that's the same way you're going to live it is by trusting Jesus to live his life in you every moment of every day the calling of a disciple is not to go out and do the best you can to read the book the good book memorize all that scripture and I believe in those things and then using your best effort and your best try and your greatest level of determination, then you might get it right someday. No. No. Your calling as a disciple is very simple. He says, you're a branch, I'm a vine, I want you to do life in me. When you're hurting, I want you to be hurting in me. Because when you're in me, you can face any hurt. When you're in me, you can forgive. When you're in me, you can accomplish things, go places, experience things you never thought were possible when you're in me. We're going to look more at that in coming weeks. But your basic calling as a disciple is to, to follow Jesus, get up as close to him as you can, and stay right there. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Pastors and I will be down front. If you need to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you come? We'd be glad to share scripture with you, answer your questions. Come to Jesus this morning. Let this be the day that you surrender everything to Christ. Brother or sister, I don't know what you're dealing with, but I want to pray for you right now. Maybe you find yourself at the end of your rope and you are frustrated. And you, you are like so many of us who have been trying to do the right thing and you have made every effort to do the right thing and you're realizing that that approach to life just doesn't work. And it's your desire now to turn to Christ by faith and just say, Lord, I thank you that you have saved me and that you live in me and I'm, I'm trusting you, trusting you to live your life in me.